0: Welcome to Air Crew Interview, I'm Mike and your host. In this episode we chat with Michael Canders as he talks about flying the Sea King, the Seahawk and the Pairfog with the US Navy and US Air Force. He includes stories from his rescue missions from Hurricane Katrina and his involvement in overseas operations. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month or you can donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, so Mike, when did you first become interested in aviation?
1: Well, I think as a young boy, I actually uh, don't live too far from some of the major airports in New York. Mm -hmm. I remember as a young boy actually taking a field trip over to Kennedy Airport, which at the time was called Idlewild Airport, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And this was long before TSA and security restrictions. So we were able to actually roll up in a school bus right up to, I think it was a 727 maybe, Mm And walk right on the aircraft and meet the crew, meet the pilots. They talked about flying. And so I think I got interested from that point mm-hmm. and uh, got, got the bug then as a, as a pretty young guy.
0: Yeah. So what year did you join the U.S. Navy?
1: Well, I was um, selected to attend the Naval Academy in uh, 1973, graduated in 1977. And then I was selected for flight training while I was a senior at uh, uh, the Naval Academy and so began flight training the summer after I graduated in 1977. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to learn to fly in a T-28 Trojan, which some people that know that aircraft are pretty surprised to know that I learned in that aircraft. Mm-hmm. Initially, the Navy used it as an intermediate trainer, and they would have a primary training in a T-34 Bravo at the time, mm-hmm. and, the, and the pipeline was typically T thirty four Bravo, then T twenty eight. But there was a transition period in which I got caught between T thirty four Bravo and Charlie, so they pushed us right into the T twenty eight, which was great fun. Fourteen hundred horsepower, um, eight thousand pound aircraft. Uh, as they tell people, I didn't know any better, so I just got it in and threw it. And it was a, it was a bit, a bit to handle, but it was a, a lot of fun to learn how to fly in a, in a T twenty eight. And then, um, so I helicopters. I really had a great affinity for helicopters. While I was a student at the Naval Academy, we traveled to different locations around the United States to see what we might want to do. And I got a familiarization flight a helicopter, really liked it. And then I really liked the idea of rescue, the idea of uh, being part of the life saving mission. So mm-hmm. that was the attraction to helicopters. So I learned in a TH 57, a Jet Ranger, TH 1, a Iroquois, or UE, the ubiquitous UE to learn uh, more advanced flying, uh, basic instruments, radio instruments. Mm-hmm. Then um, after that, was selected to uh, report to Helicopter Anti-Submarine Squadron 6, which was out in San Diego, to begin my fleet tour. I think roughly it took about a year for me to get through. I finished the T-28 fixed wing uh, portion and then went into the rotary wing. So I'm thinking roughly about a year. I actually... I was in the fixed wing portion. I actually injured my ankle playing basketball, so I was down for a while. Oh no! So, so <laughs> it took me a little bit longer than most helicopter pilots. Probably mm-hmm. total about um, eighteen months to get through.
0: And I'm very interested. How was it coming from fixed wing aircraft to training on rotary wing aircraft? That must have been quite difficult.
1: Yeah, it's like anything else. You, it's a skill you you have to acquire. Great training down in Pensacola uh, over at Whiting Field for helicopter pilots so I actually appreciated the fact that I got to fly fixed wing first get an appreciation of flying single-engine airplanes and then transitioning over to helicopters and yeah from the beginning I really loved helicopters uh challenging to learn a couple of the things like hovering and Mm -hmm. learning the skills essential for helicopter flying but yeah I just really really enjoyed it from from the start
0: So can you tell us about the first uh, frontline aircraft you went to and what squadron you were based with?
1: Well, yeah, so that would have been after helicopter flight school. I reported out to San Diego and learned to fly a helicopter called the SH-3HC King. And that was a carrier-based aircraft that was used for anti-submarine warfare to defend the carrier and the battle group against a submarine threat. And then, of course, rescue for the air wing. So we would provide... uh, Rescue capability. We would be the first off the ship prior to the launch of all the fixed wing aircraft and the last to recover. And we would do anti submarine warfare tasks, but also be right alongside the ship for launch and recovery in case one of our fixed, fixed wing brethren ran into some problems mm-hmm. uh, to get out of the aircraft. Or if they were on a training sortie near the ship, of course, we would be available to yeah. uh, go rescue them. So, um, front the front line uh, first task was anti submarine warfare and, and rescue.
0: So how long did you spend uh, with the squadron and on the type? And could you tell us what where you went after this?
1: That uh, typical squadron tour uh, was about two and a half years. So I, I arrived at the squadron. Before you go on the long deployment, you do what's called a workup period. So you deploy on the ship USS Constellation with the rest of the air wing to get ready to train to go. And then we would deploy. We were actually deployed in 1980 over to the Persian Gulf. We were, didn't enter it, but in the Indian Ocean uh, during the Iranian hostage crisis. So wow. we were stuck out there at sea for quite a number of days while that uh, went on, and, and so a lot of sea time. It was uh, originally scheduled to be a six-month deployment. I think it ended up being about eight, eight or nine months. So uh, wow. it was tough on the families and uh, and, and the. And the men on the ship. In those days, there were not yet women introduced into the uh, into the fleet in, in large fashion. So it was an all male um, evolution out there. And so that was uh, an interesting time. Um, then, after the uh, assignment to uh, helicopter anti-submarine squadron six, I got a billet at the Naval Air Systems Command in Washington D.C. And I worked in a program office for the LAMPS or LAMPS. Light Airborne Multipurpose Aircraft, and the Navy was introducing the H-60 into the fleet at that time, the SH-60B. So I had the opportunity to work in Washington, D.C., which was good. I got some program management credentials. I worked in the program office, had some interaction with congressional staffer. We were advocates for the program, briefing the program, hoping to win budget against many other programs, of course, in the Navy and the military. But it was very rewarding. And I actually got the opportunity to go up to Sikorsky Aircraft, Periodic, periodically, probably about once a quarter to fly the H-60s and some of the um, Army Blackhawks that were coming off the line. There was a program office, the Naval Plant Representative Office up in Stratford, and I was permitted to go up there and keep current. So it was really a lot of fun flying these aircraft right off the line, brand new, like flying a or getting into a new car. That new car snow really
2: <laughs>
1: Get so a chance to fly these aircraft when they were just pristine right out of the factory. So that mm-hmm. was great fun.
0: How different was it coming from the Sea King to this brand new aircraft? And uh, could you tell us a bit about the training on the aircraft?
1: Yeah, the H-60 uh, is quite a bit different. Um, faster, uh, I'll say sleeker, less of a payload, uh, but a great aircraft, um, re- very pilot friendly, uh, a great pleasure to fly. Uh, the anti-submarine warfare um, version was not, dissimilar from what the capabilities of the seeking were, although more modern equipment, um, a better sonar, better sauna buoys. And um, so I, I think it was a, a little sleeker, a little slicker to fly, more uh, sports carish than the uh, than the h three. but um, it, w- it was it uh, was great to have the opportunity to uh, to fly it in um, in the Navy for that short period of time.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was actually a multi-role aircraft um, helicopter. It wasn't designed for one specific task. Is that correct?
1: Well, the H sixty has a number of different versions. The Navy version SH sixty BF. The Air Force adopted the uh, aircraft as the combat search and rescue platform, which I eventually got to fly H sixty G or H sixty H. And then it's absolutely ubiquitous in the U.S. Army. The Army has lots and lots of fundamental Blackhawks, UH sixties A through I -I 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 think maybe L. Or Q. I mean, they've got just uh, sort of uh, the replacement for the Huey. The Huey was such a mm. widely used, widely known aircraft, and it was a competition in the late seventies to sort of replace that utility aircraft.
2: Yeah.
1: And Sikorsky the H sixty won that competition.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And before we move on to uh, when you move to the U.S. Air Force, uh, could you tell us about the cockpit of uh, the H sixty at this time? Was it up to date and modern, like we would expect uh, helicopters now with glass cockpit? Or was it still uh, analog and dials?
1: Yeah, not yet. Um, There was some glass, but these earlier versions were very much the old steam gauge style. Um, There were other uh, parts of the cockpit which had uh, a multifunction display um, on the pedestal between the pilots where you could enter data, etc. But not a lot of the glass technology where you see all of the uh, the six pack, if, if you will, integrated onto one glass area, so it was still uh, pretty uh, more analog than digital back in the early days
0: yeah so how long do you spend with the u.s navy on the h60 and how many hours did you get before you joined the u.s air force
1: well the h60 flying that i did was not uh, a a great many hours because i was i was flying up with nav pro with um, acceptance test pilots so i was more in a co-pilot role just building some hours so I decided after that tour, it would have been time in the Navy to go back to the fleet, maybe go back to the ship. I had started my family, and and my wife and I decided that we would leave the Navy, but I wanted to stay flying in the Naval Reserve initially, and I came back to Long Island, New York, where we're from, and I discovered uh, a a unit called the 106 Rescue Wing uh, right on the eastern end of Long Island, which I knew very little about until I... I actually discovered it when we were at Sikorsky flying some approaches one day. We were over at that Suffolk County Airport, and I saw at the time they had H3 helicopters. So they were flying uh, what they called the Jolly Green Giant, which was the primary combat SAR helicopter in, during Vietnam. And so when I left active duty, the Naval Reserve options were such that I would have had to commute a substantial way, Willow Grove in Pennsylvania or at the time Southway in Boston. And this unit was really right down the street, so to speak. It was very, very close to where I lived. And they were interested in me because I had already trained in an H3, so it wouldn't be necessary for me to go away for schooling for a long time. So I got the opportunity to transition from the SH3 hotel to the HH3H uh, in the U.S. Air Force, which was great fun. Uh, Ironically, as I tell people, the HH3 in the Air Force had a boat hull, so you could land it on the water. Oh, wow. and It would do, do very, very well, um, in, you know, in a modest sea state. Of course, if the sea state got too great, mm-hmm. But the Air uh, the Navy version did not have such a capability.
0: <laughs> How so ironic. I, I thought
1: it was interesting that I could actually land the HH3 Air Force version in, in a lake, which we used to do in practice, but not so in the, uh, H, the SH3 hotel. If that was in the water from the carrier, it would turn upside down pretty quickly because of the weight uh, of the rotor head. So it was uh, surprising that, uh, and ironic, as I said, that the Air Force version could float. But,
2: uh, yeah, of course. So
1: the, so the big difference between the two was really the air refueling capability of the HH-3. So that was something I had never done before, and I had some great instructors out at the 106 that taught me how to do that safely. Mm-hmm. But that was really one of the things that made the, the helicopter in our mission uh, or a one of six rescue wing so valuable was the ability to fly the aircraft for great distances with a C-130 uh, in in, in uh, tow or in formation with us, where they could just keep providing fuel to us. So really, mm-hmm. was a great capability that uh, we had.
0: Yeah, and before we move on, we've talked. Uh, we you've mentioned a few things there, like the SH double uh, H. Can you tell our viewers what these stand for?
1: Yeah, S uh, is particularly related to, I think it's sub uh, or shipboard ops, or S is probably anti submarine operations. Uh, H, if I'm not mistaken, is usually related to rescue. Um, so U is utility. I'm not as probably informed as I was uh, years ago. M, H, multi mission. So those are just designations associated with a particular. Yeah, so I transitioned from the U.S. Navy to the U.S. Air Force, uh, got a commission. I was a O3 in the Navy. I became an O3 or a, a captain in the Air Force. And because I had the H3 experience in the Navy, they were able to do what's called in-unit train me. So they have a cadre of instructor pilots that taught me about the differences with the HH3. So the big difference, of course, was air refueling and then um, maybe more remote landings, more of a combat search and rescue mission. In the Navy, there was not emphasis on that in our squadron at the time, where combat SAR was not really our forte in the helicopter squadron back on the, on the carrier back then. I think that's changed now. They do have a great combat SAR capability on the carrier now. But this our land-based squadron was responsible and would deploy as a, as a combat search and rescue asset to protect uh, during a, uh, an air campaign. And so the fundamental idea was if a, a fighter or um, some other friendly coalition aircraft was shot down, it was our, our responsibility, our job to go in and, and recover them.
0: What kind of size crew would uh, the H-60 carry?
1: Yeah, The basic, um, our basic crew was a pilot, an aircraft commander, um, a co-pilot, uh, a flight engineer and a gunner. So there was a flight engineer that would do all of our checklists and do all of our systems, very very important part of the team. The gunner was uh, also very important. Uh, would operate um, and, uh, M60 miniguns or uh, 50 cal uh, guns in the back. And then maybe um, maybe most importantly, as they would tell me, uh, the power rescue jumpers or our PJ's were a, a really vital important part of the package. Very highly trained, very uh, motivated special forces types. Yeah. That were very well trained to work in really any environment. We used to say from the highest mountains to the deepest ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Their training pipeline is a couple of years with very high attrition. So these guys are, are the ones you want coming for you if you're in trouble, whether you're in a combat situation mm-hmm. or in a civil SAR situation. Uh, they're coming. You should feel good because they are very well trained, very well capable of, of life saving in the most austere conditions.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the main points for this interview is you involved in, obviously, the tragic event of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, Could you tell us about your involvement and your story with this uh, mission, this rescue mission?
1: Yes, it was uh, quite surprising that uh, we would be tasked to fly to New Orleans to help recover the city underwater. At the time, we were really packed up ready to go to a deployment to Afghanistan. And so... One of the things that typically happens right before we go on a deployment is that uh, the crew members, the deploying members, get an opportunity to take some time off, to take some leave right before they go. So if we're deploying in a month, for example, they'll take some time with their families and uh, be able to spend some time getting their affairs together, et cetera. So we sort of wind down the training and then we have those crews slated to go. So Katrina, I think it was a Sunday, maybe when it landfall in New Orleans, and we were, we were watching it, not thinking we would be tasked. And of course, the big surprise was the, the failure of these levees, which flooded the city mm. and filled the city. And I, I didn't know, probably most people didn't know, that much of the city is described as a bowl. It's below sea level. Wow, okay. Uh, and, and the, and the levees around the city are what protects it from flooding. So there's a very large body of water called Lake Pontchartrain to the north, and of course, the Mississippi River to the south. And when this levee failure in Lake Pontchartrain happened, the water just started flowing. And I think that was on Monday night. So I do remember a headline from the Times-Picayune, uh, which is the main newspaper down there in New Orleans. I think the, the, the headline read like, dodged a bullet, meaning that a lot of the wind damage and a lot of the rain damage didn't occur. But of course, that that motion in those winds did weaken the levees to the point where they eventually gave way and flooded the city. So uh water's pouring in, probably starting Monday night, all day Tuesday. Wednesday, I got a call from my contact at the Air Force Special Operations Command, who said, you've got to send everything you can down to New Orleans. And I explained, of course, and he knew we were getting ready to go on the deployment. And he said, well, just send what you can. So we had um, a couple of helicopters that were back at base. They weren't scheduled for the deployment. And for me, at the time, I was the wing commander. So normally I would not go on a mission like this. As you get more senior, you do less flying, which uh, is disappointing sometimes. You have to do your admin work and your leadership. and uh, But not to say it's not a great job, but you do sometimes get less flying. But in this case, all the as I say, all the good pilots were slated to go to Afghanistan, so they had to scrape the bottom of the barrel and get me to go. So I actually had the opportunity to go on one of the aircraft and send two down there. And flew down, um, I guess it was all day Thursday. So we got down there on Thursday evening. And we had two aircraft. So one aircraft worked, at, I'll say, a night shift, and the aircraft I was in worked a day shift. But we actually uh, headquartered out of Jackson, Mississippi, because there was no power, there was no real ability logistically to support rescue forces. So we actually were in Jackson, about a mile north of New Orleans with a bunch of other Air Force helicopters. I think there were 20 others. So there are units from around the country. They're active duty um, CSAR units and then Guard and Reserve CSAR units. And a bunch of us all met up there in Jackson. And then we headed down to New Orleans. on the first day, first couple of days, there wasn't a lot of organization because it was a hurry to get people out of their homes. So if you ever get a chance to see up some of the pictures, you'll note that the water is all the way up to the rooftops. Yeah. So people were literally on their roofs and so they were not sure what was happening they were hoping maybe the flooding would subside but because of the bowl effect of the city of New Orleans it just stayed flooded for days and days so our mission was really to go downtown and just start to look for people uh, that were on their roof rooftops or if they were in their homes somehow signaling to us to go wow. pick them up so it was pretty pretty shocking as i say flying from Jackson which was north we fly across the lake and then just to look at the city of New Orleans completely underwater, everywhere you looked, mm-hmm. it was just, just incredible.
0: So you're not expecting the severity of the situation before you flew over there?
1: No, uh, but once a big surprise, and I would tell people, you know, television pictures or still pictures, but nothing was like being in the aircraft and sort turning your head, 360 and everywhere you looked, there was just water, just uh, at different levels. At some places, very, very deep, right up to the rooftops and other places less so. But the people that needed the most help were those that were literally on their roofs looking for help. So that's the that first day we were actually just flying along, um, picking people up off their roofs. And we would typically send our pararescue jumpers down the rescue voice onto the roof to explain to the the survivors how we were going to get them into the aircraft and so naturally we, we make a lot of noise they were frightened this was going to be their first helicopter ride but I can't say enough about our PJs just the best uh, great diplomats very personable keeping them calm taking yeah. children in their, in their arms up into the aircraft and um, and just doing a great job and one and one of them early on uh, two great guys Rocco pergola Jeff Smith very, very smart guys, they said, hey, sir, we better, after we take people off the roof, let's mark the roof to let people know that we've been here because the rescue wasn't very organized. So they had spray paint and they would make a, a note on the roof and they write rescue and they write our, our unit number and they would say, you know, rescue two or rescue three. So other rescuers that would come later would waste time trying to see if anybody was in the house. So very, very uh, talented, quick thinking. By them, and there were a number of helicopters—not only the military helicopters, but a lot of civilian helicopters down there—all mm-hmm. working on one frequency, trying to not step in, step on each other on the frequency, yeah, and really try to coordinate the effort. Mm-hmm. But um, all in all, it was it was really magnificent to see it. Eventually, uh, the Air Force uh, leadership up in Jackson, we were able to grid out sectors to do it more efficiently mm-hmm. to make sure we could get everybody out that needed to get out. But mm-hmm. by that day, I mean we were making pickups on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. People were out of food, out of water. A couple of people had some medical conditions, some medical issues. So uh was a we had a photo of a, a lift of a an elderly woman who our pararescueman got, got her into a stretcher and we hoisted her up in the stretcher into the helicopter. And then got her over to a triage area that they had set up at the Louis Armstrong Airport, their main airport mm-hmm. in New Orleans, basically a hospital where they were able to get some generators. They would tri- triage patients there. There were a bunch of doctors and medical staff there that were addressing the uh, injuries to the to the survivors. Yeah, there was the triage area at the hospital for those that we make would make a determination when we brought people up into the helicopter if they weren't injured if they were in pretty good shape they were ambulatory they could move on themselves by themselves we would take them to another place uh, which was identified as we was called the Cloverleaf which was basically the transition between Interstate 10 and one of the main roads into New Orleans so there mm-hmm. were a bunch or I'll never forget a line of buses it must have been 50 or 100 of buses lined up wow. so people would come in with their whatever belongings they had and the buses would just take them away from the city. I think they went to different places yeah. around the country, Houston and all over the uh, all over the United States. So it was uh, quite it, it, it really demanded a lot a lot of our skill sets for well, combat search and rescue. We had a lot of developed good skill sets, but nothing like working over this urban environment with power lines and all other, other sorts of things. One of the things we learned early on is we couldn't hover too Closely over a roof because a lot of times we would just peel the uh, the roofing material off the roof and of course it would sort of fly up and you didn't want to strike a rotor with a piece of shingle or something so we had to learn that Mm -hmm. and in one case very memorable case there was a young man uh, I'm guessing probably in his 30s on top of his roof waving a white shirt and he had written on his roof that his family was inside the house. He couldn't get them up on the roof, so this was a very physical guy. Obviously, he was able to climb out a window, climb up onto the roof. So we put the power men down onto the roof, and they communicated with him. And it turned out that most of his family were they were in the house, but he couldn't get them up. So the power man had a pickaxe and a chainsaw that they brought back, he got it down from the helicopter. They actually cut a hole in the top of the roof. Wow. Into the hot attic, so they into a dark attic, and then they cut a hole in the ceiling down into the room where the survivors were. So you can imagine these people looking up and seeing a hole being cut into their roof and some uh US forces coming through. Wow. And they were able to get everybody out. I think there were eight survivors in there, including a baby. And so they just we sort of just hoisted them up through this hole and got them all to safety. So it was really another demonstration of how how skilled, how smart these pararescuemen were, and the rest of the team, the flight engineer, the gunner, all working together to make sure they were safely on board. Uh, One of the differences between the H3 and the H60 was the payload was much smaller. So we would jam as many as we could in there safely to take them to the triage area or to the cloverleaf for further disposition. But uh, now it was quite a stunning memory. I still have it sort of burned in my brain of just everywhere to see I visited New Orleans over the years and I had the opportunity to visit. Of course, it's a great city, totally underwater. Just, just amazing.
0: Yeah. I can imagine immensely rewarding as well, you know, to just directly help people who are that much in need.
1: Yeah. I think, as I said earlier, one of the things that attracted me to helicopter flying was that opportunity. I think one of the Sikorsky quotes was he was so pleased that his invention would be used for that mission. So, uh, very very important really couldn't have done it without these without mm-hmm. all of these helicopters not just ours
2: mm-hmm. we had another
1: helicopter from our unit as well yeah staffed by some staff great teammates so mm-hmm. it's uh, all good
0: so to go into a bit of nitty-gritty about the kind of operations how would you and the crews go about planning a certain rescue is it literally get in and have a look or did you have to coordinate with other helicopters can you tell us about this
1: yeah, early on, as I said, it was sort of uh, the instructions were go downtown. It was a common frequency that we were working that we tried to check in. But at that point, there wasn't anybody sort of quarterbacking it. So we initially went to the parts of the city that we sort of eyeballed and looked where the water was the deepest. So that's how we did it in the beginning. Then eventually, uh, uh, probably day two, or uh, day two and a half, the there was some good mission management from up back in Jackson where, we established a grid and then each of the military helicopters was assigned to working the grid. So uh, we weren't sure of where survivors may be. You fly over a neighborhood or fly over a house and try to make a determination if you thought there were survivors in there. Um, so that, that's how we, how we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, on a, on a rescue mission, you'll, and I never had the opportunity to do a combat uh, mission, but uh, a fair amount of civil search and rescue missions where we would get tasked by the Coast Guard or some other agency to go look. So we would come in and mission plan to the best of our ability. Um, one of the things that I, I always say about uh, rescue rescue work is that frequently the information that you get initially changes. So you might get a report of a boat missing, um, a Boston whaler with two occupants and a dog. And when you take off and start flying, the op center calls you and say, well, it's not two people, it's one person and a dog, and it's not a Boston whaler. It's a cabin cruiser, right? That kind of thing. And typically, you'd be testing in some challenging weather. So mm-hmm. I think one of the important qualities of good crew members, aircraft commanders, co-pilots, all the crew members, is really risk management and mission management. And it's up to that aircraft commander to perhaps make a tough call because as the weather deteriorates or as the conditions can deteriorate or as things change, you may have to make a tough call. We always want to go to save that survivor. We always want to make sure that if they're in extremis, we want to get there and save their lives. Sometimes when a mission would go down, maybe the p- people calling it in would not realize that maybe they could wait to the next day, for example. Very weary of night missions because of the risk associated with that. So we would get to the point where we would question the tasking agency to say, OK, tell us exactly what's going on We frequently try to get a flight doc uh, a flight surgeon involved in the loop so they could talk to other medical professionals to say Mm -hmm. no kidding this person has to come off right now at night and and if we got that tasking we would go but mission management risk management because of the variables because of the the constant changes that were typical of these missions made it made it pretty challenging. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you think the H-60 was the right aircraft uh, for this job?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it was. It was initially from the combat search and rescue perspective. The specification, I would say, was really to pick up two fighter pilots or two pilots, yeah. um, any any type pilot, if you will. But the, the common thinking would be in an air campaign. If a fighter was shot down, then our, our our crew would go in to get it. So you really only needed space for two. Yeah. Now, sort of, sort of in Katrina or in maybe other cases where you had a large number to bring back um, we the, the space was limited, so it was tighter. Mm-hmm. But the Air Force is continuing with the commitment to the H60. So I do think the H sixty is a good choice. It's mm-hmm. a good it was a good, very reliable aircraft. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we also did at the 106 was provide a space shuttle contingency uh, rescue or contingency. Right. So wow. the space shuttle had an had an issue and, and uh, astronauts could at some point actually during the ascent. There were different windows in which they would be able to bail out, believe it or not. Right. Oh. None of the ones I talked to really <laughs> thought very highly of the fact they would have to do that. But, mm-hmm. uh, we would practice that. But one of the things, of course, was we could really only take one astronaut in a an in aircraft because of their suit and then because of the need to probably do some important medical attention immediately. So. Yeah when we would do these missions, we'd have plenty of helicopters available mm-hmm. to uh, to address the need to perhaps take mm-hmm. take an astronaut up after a bailout of the space shuttle.
0: Yeah. So we talked a bit about uh, the rescues, but how were the crews and yourself uh, dealing with the Katrina situation?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think physically we had to be careful because it was very, very warm down there. I, probably the, the air. T- Temperature was in the 90s, and then with the humidity, the, the real field temperatures were probably over 100. So we really needed to be careful. Of course, the, the word of the day was hydrate, drink a lot of water, make sure we had plenty of water. And of course, our survivors, our, the folks we were going to go attend to needed water. So water was a big part of the uh, equation. But I think um, for us, it was just great motivation. I think mentally, we thought, wow, this is really. Folks are in a bad spot here, and we have the opportunity to, to help as best mm-hmm. we can. So, I think it was for for me and, and, and for my my teammates there. I think it was a very very life changing. Um, imagine self satisfying, great great sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And in the 106, I've been gone for a number of years, but they were also fully engaged in Houston recently, almost the same type of mission with very widespread spreading after hurt, uh, wide, widespread damage after. Hurricane Harvey, uh, Puerto Rico. So I think the reputation of the unit to do some pretty spectacular rescue work is well-known now, and they'll get tasked to uh, to go. But you always have to measure the operations tempo and fatigue of the wing, and particularly the families. You
2: know, yeah. When
1: wing members go off on a deployment or if they're even on a Katrina, um, the families are left wondering, uh, hoping things are going, going well.
0: I don't know if this is uh, the right way to uh, phrase it, but did you have any... Memorable rescues or things that just burnt in your brain that you'll never forget.
1: Yeah, we I've done a couple of rescues. Um, I'll say civil search and rescues, and on Long Island here we're surrounded by water. So
2: yeah,
1: if it's a long range rescue, uh, the Coast Guard would give us a, give us a shout and say, "Hey, can you get out there?" And I think um, one of my early ones uh, was a rescue of a there was a a foreign national that had a, a burst appendix and they were in a very bad uh, medical state. So the Coast Guard actually uh, had gone out to the vessel. They had a, 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 fair, a fair sized Coast Guard vessel, maybe about a, a 60 footer, or 75 footer, go out and pick this person off the ship and start to get them toward New York to get medical attention. And in route, they said, This patient probably is not going to make it. Wow. If we continue to try to get in on the uh, on the vessel, can you send a helicopter out so we said, of course we went out. we didn't have a tanker available, mm-hmm. and it was while we were on a training mission, so we sort of diverted out there and we really had to be careful with fuel calculations because we had a range and bearing to where the coast Guard vessel was going to be, but we were using very old technology this is before GPS and we were yeah. using. Was called TACAN, tactical mm-hmm. air navigation, a range and bearing from a, a nav aid. So we're trying to figure out about where this ship would be. And so we got out to the scene. Of course, it took us longer to get out there than we thought. We had some winds that were not favorable, and night had fallen. So it was well, I'll say dusk. It wasn't dark, dark night, but it was now nighttime. And, and as it was getting darker, we really wanted to get the survivor off, of course, and get the paramedicine back on. So once again, these guys did a great job. We got them down on the on the vessel. They we were able to get the, the patient up into the aircraft, and then we started heading back to uh, to our base. And it was the fuel was tight. It was very very um, I'll say touch and go. And <laughs> so uh, it was very very uh, comforting to see the lights of Long Island oh, as we were coming back and got them to the. Uh, over to one of our hospital centers here, Stony Brook Hospital, we got the patient. Yeah. And uh, a great save, uh, which perhaps may not have, um, might have been a lost life if we hadn't been able to get out there. So when we got back, just those few low-level lights came on, so it was, uh, it was tough. But back to this idea of uh, the challenge of rescue. You get, you get information, and sometimes it might not be as accurate as you'd like, a lot of things change. The ship may be farther away. There might be a different configuration. The patient may be in worse shape. So those things also always have to be considered. So I'll so say that was a non-Katrina one. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Katrina ones, of course, were um, really rewarding, particularly that family that yeah. I described earlier. And I and I also remember I when we were very busy, I remember triaging, um, or the power men would triage patients in the back and we would bring them to the airport, as I said, Louis Armstrong Airport, New Orleans. And we would sort of, uh, roll up, we'd taxi up, we'd taxi the aircraft, of course. And, uh, I remember I was sitting very concentrating in another task and I felt, I felt a tug on my flight suit and this, um, woman who probably, I'm thinking in her 80s, um, in a nightgown, just mouthed the words, thank you. And uh, I thought, well, gee, you're, you know, <laughs> in, in the heat of things, it was just very touching that she wow. uh, she took the time to do it. She just wanted to thank A us.
0: simple two words, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and of course, the guys in the back, she was very thankful for, uh, thankful too. And then, actually, when she came out of the aircraft, she also insisted, the rescue me brought her to the window, and she sort of knocked on the window again. <laughs> She waved goodbye. Brilliant. uh, And uh, lovely, lovely elder woman. And uh, so, yeah, those sorts of things were were very memorable.
0: So I can imagine you have, well, probably do have a a strong bond with the the city.
1: Yes. Uh, New York, of course. Um, uh, Long Island, where I live, is about 45 miles east of New York City. Uh, I grew up here. And, of course, uh, the, the big other uh, momentous event for it was 9-11. Uh, our unit was, the unit, uh, the Crow Flies is only about 60 miles away from Manhattan. And so um, I was actually not full-time in the Air National Guard. I was a part-timer, as are many National mm-hmm. Guardsmen are. And I was at work um, not far from where I am right now. And I was working for a private company. And one of the secretaries came in, and turned on the television, said a aircraft hit the World Trade Center. And I think like most of us thought, OK, you know, King Air or like Twin or some other aircraft. But because the day was so beautiful, it was so mystifying as to why that mistake could have occurred. So we were watching the coverage. And then, of course, the second aircraft struck the tower. So I told my boss, like, oh, I'm going to get on the phone, call the rescue wing. And I just couldn't get through. I mean, the line was busy. And we just couldn't get through. I said, I, I got to go. So I, I went out to the wing. Um, right right when I got there, we're getting aircraft ready to go, ready to uh, deploy as required. And just as we was getting ready to do that, the, the, the first tower fell and then the second tower fell. So we had not been tasked yet by uh, the Air National Guard Headquarters in New York. But we did get a couple of helicopters downtown um, after the towers fell with our power rescue and they joined in the brigade of those looking for the law. So we have a bunch of power, power rescue men down there looking for survivors. And I think I, I tell people one of the things that I r- remember was that we were out of the unit, getting ready to go, and we didn't know where. But we did expect, I, I personally expected another attack. Of course, there was another one in Washington at the Pentagon. But I figured and didn't know the word Al-Qaeda. I didn't know who this enemy was. But I thought if they could do what they did to those towers, that they're something, some people to be reckoned with. So we were very fearful. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought of the Statue of Liberty. I thought of uh, Wall Street. We just thought there was going to be a wave of these attacks. Very, very concerned about that, but very, very ready. So we talked about how we would address that. What we do, and unfortunately, they, they didn't come as as we thought. So. A uh, men were down at the World Trade Center for quite a couple of days mm-hmm. assisting. Not many survivors, I think. If I remember correctly, they actually assisted in lifting. She may have been the last survivor covered under the uh, the rubble there. And uh, so they were able to help be part of the human chain that carried her uh, in, a, in a letter to, uh, wow. to safety. But then, yeah, shortly thereafter, we were already scheduled for a deployment to Operation Northern Watch. Yeah. And, of course families were very very concerned and naturally so and so that deployment happened and then we were getting ready to go mm-hmm. for uh, a full engagement in this global war on terrorism mm-hmm. in, uh, right after 2001. so i actually was selected to be the commander uh, that year and um i can't say enough about the men and women and their families of so the 106 just magnificent yeah. and we were very very heavily tasked and a lot of the the airmen were part-timers, and some of them own their own businesses. And they made wow. huge sacrifices economically, uh, as well as physically, as well as the, the potential for harm in a combat zone and the risk associated with uh, combat search and rescue flying. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yes, yeah, very much connected to New York, very much a New York Air National Guard unit. Um, of course, love the city. Nice to see the recovery now when we go down there. Um, Farmingdale now, I actually fly up flight with our seniors, and we actually fly into New York City. It's great to see the um, Freedom Tower now replacing the World Trade Center. and yeah. So uh, the recovery is is complete. But 106 and uh, the rest of the U.S. forces and friendly forces, coalition forces around the world are busy, you know, paying attention to the continuing threat of terrorism, unfortunately.
0: And you mentioned a few operations there, but you've managed to participate in a lot. Can you name a few that you've been involved with?
1: Well, after um, the first Gulf War, we were actually in a transition from the H-3 to the H-60. so in 1991, when that occurred, we did not deploy as part of that first wave or that first action in Gulf War One. But subsequent to that, the UN imposed sanctions, establishing no-fly zones in the northern part and southern part of Iraq. So our unit was regularly scheduled to be part of the Air Force or the U.S. forces package that would go and we would either deploy to Kuwait to work Southern Watch or up to Incirlik, Turkey or other places in Turkey Mm -hmm. to operate and cover Northern Watch. And we'd basically sit alert. There would be periods where U.S. and coalition British-French fighters were in in what they would call the box, the uh, no-fly zone over northern Iraq, southern Iraq. And we would stand by, and if anyone got in trouble or shot down or was in harm's way in Iraq or elsewhere, uh, we were ready to go. So unfortunately, never had a shoot-down, never had an action that required us to do that, but it was very uh, interesting and rewarding to be part of Northern Watch and Southern Watch. Mm -hmm. And then ironically, of course, in 2003, the war uh, with Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, and actually we're in Iraq, so for years we were sort of bracketing it to the north and south, and then suddenly we were uh, fully engaged and in-country as part of the uh, CSAR effort Mm -hmm. and the other U.S. Air Force efforts after the 2003 invasion.
0: Yeah, how long did you spend on your military career flying, and can you sum it up for us?
1: Sure, yeah, well, about eight and a half years on active duty with the Navy, and uh, loved my time in the U.S. Navy as a naval aviator, and then got the opportunity to transition to the Air Force, which was also fun. So an opportunity Mm -hmm. to see flying from a little different perspective and enjoy being an Air Force aviator. So for eight and a half years on active duty for the Navy, and then uh, 25 years with the Air National Guard. So wow. really was uh, an exciting uh, time in my life. I really enjoyed it. And, of course, uh, my family, I can't say enough about their willingness to let me do that, to uh, go off to Northern Watch or Southern Watch. Or, uh, my last job, I was the commander at uh, Seder Air Base in Iraq. I don't think they were necessarily happy with me doing that. <laughs> it was Christmas and New Year's and all those holidays, but I had the opportunity really to have a, a Air Force family over there in Iraq. So mm-hmm. uh, we did the best we could to uh, to mitigate the, the sadness associated with being away from our families, but, but it was good. So 25 years in the Air National Guard and 8 in the uh, Navy, so about 33 years total. And a lot of that 33 was part-time, Mike. Um, yeah. Uh, after nine eleven, I was full time in the guard, nine eleven through two thousand nine. But um, a, a big bulk of my time as a uh, in the one hundred and six was as a, what we call a traditional guardsman. So I had a job at a company called Telephonics Corporation, call but then I would um, uh, fly once a week to stay proficient and then be available to deploy as
0: mm-hmm. required. So do you have any hobbies?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll put golf. As- as my uh, maybe my number one hobby, I'm not playing as much as I'd like, and I'm not a good golfer, um, high handicapper, but enjoy the game, love the game, and really it's more about the, the foursome that, that I'm with and, and the friendships and razzing each other and, and just having a good time out course, on, yeah. on a beautiful day, a good walk spoiled. So, it's- mm-hmm.
0: so what's the air- favorite aircraft you've ever flown?
1: Ah, okay, I. I I really like those H3s because they okay. weren't as fast as the H60s, but particularly the HH3, the Jolly Green, it was really a lot of fun landing on that On a, We used to go up to Lake Champlain because it was fresh water, so we wouldn't get too much salt water, which would be more corrosive. But I really enjoyed flying that HH3. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, maybe the ultimate um, recreational vehicle. You could fly it. You could land it on the lake. So we would, we would land it on the lake, shut the rotors off, and we have to Lake Plattsburgh, this would be in the summer, a whole bunch of boaters would come and figure out, what, what the heck is this? Yeah. And put our, put our feet in the water and, and really uh, enjoy that. So that, that HH3 was fun. But I, I really loved them all. I loved flying off the carrier on the, the H3 and H60, like I said, a sports car, very, very quick. And uh, air refueling was, was satisfying. Mm-hmm. Tough at times, but when you could successfully air refuel, uh, really a lot of fun. So I did, I like flying the H60 for that reason. And then, of course, the C 130 uh, was great fun as well.
0: Brilliant. So, is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown in your career?
1: You know, I, I had my eye on that V 22, the Osprey. Yeah. And over the years, I thought perhaps it would be introduced into the inventory before I, before I left. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I'd love to uh, learn how to fly that and, and try flying that. Uh, I think, of course, they had some challenges early on, but I think now it's a uh, pretty safe and reliable aircraft. So, yeah, I think if I, if I had a wish list, I, I'd put the, uh, the Osprey, the V-22, mm-hmm. right at the top of the list.
0: So can you tell us what you're currently up to and do you still fly today?
2: Yeah, well, I've
1: got a great, uh, great opportunity at Farmingdale State College here in New York and um, really enjoying being the Aviation Center Director. We have a professional pilot program, 22 aircraft, about 100 students, and we're teaching them or preparing them to be professional pilots, uh, military, airline, corporate. So we have a, a great um, base of opportunity for our students. And uh, it's a great joy for me to, to fly with them. I had never flown with an iPad before. I never really had the advantage of all this technology. So I really learned a lot from my students and uh, I get to fly with them. I do a, a course called the Professional Pilot Capstone course. So we actually fly our twin engine Seminole into New York City so we can practice good crew resource management mm-hmm. in that very busy radio uh, environment, a lot, of, a lot of chatter on the radio. So we have to do great crew coordination looking out for other traffic and uh, so I think the students enjoy it and I, I certainly enjoy it so yeah it's been a great a great uh, sort of back end of my of my life uh, working at, uh, at Farmingdale like I say great college great place to be mm-hmm. I have a great team here great chief flight instructor director of maintenance uh, safety officer admin dispatch all our flight instructors outstanding all our maintenance technicians outstanding and our students are outstanding. Yeah. It's fun, you know, they, they they move at different levels. Some of them just pick it up right away. Others we have to spend a little bit more time with. But um, we typically take our best students and hire them to be our flight instructors. So it's right. great to yeah. see the, the further development of our students as flight instructors. And mm-hmm. I'd say to them, you're the, you're the most important leader in the building as a flight instructor because what you do, what you say, how you behave, how you fly, how you prepare is how they will. So yeah. It's fun to be able to share that, to make sure that they're doing things on time correctly uh, with integrity. And so it's been uh, mm-hmm. a great joy for me to continue to, to fly and to be in this aviation uh, in this aviation business.
0: Brilliant. And just in case there's any viewers watching this in the area, can we find this uh, college online or do you have a social media uh, page anywhere?
1: We do. Well, it's Farmingdale State College, farmingdale.edu. So on the website you could uh, find us, and maybe if you just put in Farmingdale State College Aviation, we have a page. It's part of the college website, so all of the information is there. So yeah, we're a very good, um, I'll say, good deal, good uh, economic for deal for, particularly for New York State residents because mm-hmm. our our tuition is relatively low. I mean, it's about seven thousand dollars for the year,
2: okay. and that's then okay. our
1: flight fees. Uh, between schools, they're probably about the same. So we require our students to put down eighteen thousand a year, mm-hmm. but and basically they draw down from that. So if they're good students, they may not necessarily use all those funds. Mm-hmm. So roughly speaking, we say for a New York State resident about twenty five k or twenty five thousand right. a year in tuition. And as you you may know, Mike, there's a very very large pro pilot shortage that's um, looming, awesome. uh, particularly with the mandatory retirement here in the United States. Yep. For, I was retired at age 65. The military is also concerned about their shortages. So our students are in a pretty good pretty good place. I think they're, you know, as I say, a seller's market. So they have the opportunity to have a great um, aviation career. Yeah.
0: And the question I ask all my guests. Finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation?
1: You know, I don't. Um, and one of the things that we, we've done here um, since I've been here is really formalize our safety programs Mm -hmm. we have a safety management system that we're very proud of our safety officer has really done a great job in in building it and we're teaching our students about risk management and hazard reporting about uh, all the things they need to do to keep safe so i enjoy the opportunity to talk about the program and how we keep it safe Uh, we had a rash of uh, general aviation accidents not too long ago here in long island you know three or four so i had the opportunity to, through the college to talk to the media about how we're how we address that mm-hmm. and talk about good maintenance good pilots and safe operations so uh yeah to answer your question i'm really pleased i'm able to continue my love of aviation through, the, through this uh good college here and through my great college here at college
0: well mike it's been an absolute joy talking to you and hearing your story and thanks very much for coming on the show
1: Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.